Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. It's been a crazy couple of months in the pro-life movement, as most of you will know. Things are, are, are kind of nuts in Washington, D.C. A lot of things seem up in the air. And those of you who follow the podcast regularly will know that I've spoken a couple of times over the last few months to Marjorie Dannenfelser of the Susan B. Anthony List. She's one of America's most influential pro-life leaders. She's good friends with Vice President Mike Pence, and she's been at the forefront of the pro-life moment we've seen over the last several years, working to get pro-life executive orders with the Vice President and other pro-life members of the outgoing administration, uh, working to ensure that the right justices get put into place. The Susan B. Anthony list, I know a number of their staff members, is really just an incredible organization, and Marjorie uh, has the inside track on everything that's going on from the, the judicial confirmation process to what is being said in Washington, D.C. We talked to her before the Georgia runoff races to find out what kind of position we were in. And now with the way everything has turned out, I really wanted to talk to her again about what happens next for the pro-life movement, what happens between now and the 2022 midterm races, what kind of posture, what kind of position is the pro-life movement in as the result of the, the, the Georgia races. And so Marjorie agreed kindly to give us more of her time and come on the podcast. Once again, I think it was a phenomenal conversation and I hope you enjoy it and find it as enlightening as I did. So we talked just before the, everybody went to vote in the Georgia runoff races. And you had said that you, you were cautiously optimistic, but very concerned, which seems to have been uh, the right analysis. So what, what, is the, what is the SBA list and the pro-life movement thinking with the result as it turned out? Well, yeah, I was cautiously optimistic and very concerned. And the reasons were now very apparent. Um, where, what, what's most important is the strength of the pro-life movement. And, and so the answer to that is, is the answer to this. And that is that I don't think that um, I, I think that our that the two things one is very practical and the other is long term. The practical piece is that the is that the incredible strength on the ground that the pro life movement is now um, is uh, arguably bigger than almost any other issue set individual okay. issue set. Um, and but it is not so large that it can overcome um, the uh, uh, voter fraud that closes the margin between two candidates. So in other words, if we gain 100,000 votes in a state because of our work and we um, and we lose 100,000 votes to voter fraud, we're back at, at obviously at, at the zero sum game there. And that's and that. So for us, to the extent that voter fraud um, is at all that it ever happens is a problem to the extent that it closes the margin that we're able to provide in, um, in electing pro-life uh, champions, it is of a primary concern. So to, to me, um, and this does not speak to the overall health of the movement right now, this is just the practical reality of where mm -hmm. we stand. Um, so uh, that, that to us moving forward is a really important issue um, and to try to look at it scientifically, not emotionally about um, what we do about that. Um, Having said all that, uh, the loss is still a loss, no matter how you look at it, and we're moving forward, not moving backwards. Um, having lost the Senate, the House, uh, get, the House is in the same state as it was, but with a narrower margin, 
and having lost the presidency, all by very narrow margins, we still have lost all three branches, all, all three, not branches, all three um, contests in which we were involved. And so our job is very different from what we thought it was going to be moving into 2021. Um, it's a very defensive posture uh, by definition um, on the federal level. Um, beyond that, we're in much better shape, but as, a, as regards Georgia and the consequences there, it's been incredibly frustrating without question. So you think, um, so when you talk about voter fraud, which has of course been one of the primary discussions, you think, or you suspect that something took place in Georgia during the runoff races, or you're just saying that because of the discussion, the pro-life movement has to take these things into consideration and examine the issue? I think that we don't know. And that's the biggest problem that the entire country has. Half of the country really thinks there's egregious, overwhelming fraud. Um, a subset thinks there's fraud, but not enough to close the margin. I think we have to get to the bottom of that in the general and in the runoff, because I can't. Um, it's, because I, I, I don't think that anyone claims that anything much happened between the general and the runoff to really address the problems of fraud. I mean, around the edges, perhaps yes, but nothing fundamental. So I, I am not going to be someone who claims that that the runoff was stolen. I, I. Because I just honestly don't know. What I think we must do is find out. And that was not being litigated uh, pre the general or pre the runoff. Uh, but it has to be now. And in a way that is not flaming passions, but frankly, keeps passions at bay when we move into the next election. Because, um, I mean, it, it, it should be a straight up data point, not a, a question of, of, uh, of what your ideology is about whether there was voter fraud or not. So that's a long answer to your question, which basically is like, I don't know, but we better find out. Right, right. Yeah, because I, I find myself more or less in, in the middle group, which is that there is some there is some fraud, but probably not enough to close the gap. And that's purely based on an appeal to authority. I'm weighing, who, like, you know, who's making which claims. But before yeah. 2022, it, so there, there has to be some way to restore faith in the system. That's absolutely the case. Um, because, yeah, you just you can't survive with also with people checking out. I've, I've seen pro-life activists, you know, sort of threaten to check out of everything. And a lot of and, and the exit data showed that a lot of people did check out in Georgia, that a huge percentage of people who identify as very conservative didn't bother voting, which hurt us really badly. Um, yeah. When, so when we look at the Senate for a minute, um, so it, it was interesting. You saw Joe Manchin trending on Twitter as the results were coming in in Georgia. Uh, Joe Manchin, for the listeners who aren't familiar, is a more conservative Democrat. He supports the Hyde Amendment. Um, he also, uh, for example, voted for the confirmation of, uh, of Brett Kavanaugh. And so and what kind of shape are we? We're uh, two years away from the congressional races, at which point perhaps the GOP has has the opportunity to, to, to retake one of the two houses. So do we think that with with the very, very slim majority that the Dems have that they can ramrod through, say, the Equality Act or to initiate court packing? Or are we going to see a, a two-year rollback of all of the executive orders and all of these sorts of things that the Trump administration did, but we're going to avoid the apocalyptic scenario of the Equality Act rolling back state-level abortion legislation? Yeah, that is the number one question. The number one question is, what does Joe Manchin do? We should make bracelets uh, and pass those out. Because uh, what Joe Manchin decides to do, whether to stick to his commitment, which he has made to oppose the ending of the legislative filibuster, in other words, 
keeping the legislative filibuster in place <laughs> is his current position. If that stays intact, then I think we are we have a fighting chance to beat back um, efforts to court pack to add to add U.S. senators to the number of senators in the um, in the Senate and uh, reform literally reform the, the uh, what the Supreme Court looks like to to reflect an election result, which is, of course, the opposite of what the Supreme Court is supposed to be. So if Joe Manchin sticks to that position that he has, we're in good shape. Um, and and frankly, there's some other things that that if he sticks with the Hyde Amendment, um, then we're in good shape uh, and may. And, you know, what you hope in those situations, but hope is not a plan. It is just just it's a, it's a fate. What you hope in those situations is that the uh, because it's so close in the Senate and the House that the, that other members on the edges will follow the lead of uh, and and be a little bit concerned that the next that the term term is coming up where they're going to have a reelect or, or or an unelect and be a little bit concerned about dramatic remaking of of the institutions that our country depends upon for balance and also of course an incredibly unpopular position like unfettered abortion on demand pressed on the states at the moment when the tide in the movement is completely opposite that. So in other words, if they take that big overreach of a step, um, they uh, could see far worse, um, you know, uh, situation for their own party. And and I, what we hope, of course, is that there is a, there are people who follow the, you know, that, that feel their moderate uh, grassroots back home and won't allow that to happen. But we do, as you know, Jonathan, have a very polarized House and Senate. Yes. <laughs> and we're living in a moment that's, I hate the word unprecedented, because it almost never is, but it is unique to this moment that it is so polarized. And um, uh, so our hope is that if they're with a nine-vote margin in the House and a, and a you know, one-vote margin in the, in the two-vote margin in the Senate, that uh, there'll be a little bit of uh, concern about radicalizing both houses. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to tell what they're going to do because you see, you know, the human rights uh, campaign and Planned Parenthood releasing their list of demands. There's the basic stuff that we know will happen, which is sort of the removal of the global gag rule or the Mexico City policy, mm-hmm. stuff that we're all expecting. And then there's the stuff that we're kind of hoping they hold off on uh, because they're worried about losing Congress in 2022 and because – and it's 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 difficult not to sound morbid about it, but it's not like Biden doesn't have a lot of stuff on his plate coming in, right? There's still the vaccine rollout. You still have um, the COVID nineteen pandemic ongoing. You've got unprecedented. Oh, there's that word again. Economic stuff. <laughs> You know, economic turmoil taking place. But then you have a handful of activists who are going to be saying we've got a two year window to ramrod through all these different things that we want to accomplish. Um, I was I really wanted to ask you, because when I when I was going over it, if if in the next 24 months we don't see the Equality Act passed, which is a nightmare scenario, and we don't see court packing, we hang on to the Hyde Amendment. Could we consider it an incredibly successful two years? Because we we at that point we've we've held, we've gotten 230 judges, a conservative leaning yeah. Supreme Court, and we've sort of dodged the, the 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 you know the nuclear options from their side. Yeah, I think yes. Uh, in this context, major success is defined as our defensive wins. We didn't we didn't force abortion on demand on the whole country. We didn't force the whole country to fund every uh, every potential abortion through the federal government. 
We didn't remake the Supreme Court in the image of the Democratic Party, <laughs> and we didn't end uh, the legislative filibuster with, with the, that check on power, uh, absolute power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yes, those will be legislatively on the federal level, our measures. Thank God, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, um, those are not the only measures we're, we're looking at because of the progress of, of uh, the court and, and state legislatures all over the country. Uh, a side thought that just popped into my head, do we have any idea what Joel Manchin's position on abortion is just in general? Very much opposed. I mean, I've met with him mm. more than once, and uh, he is very opposed. He's very uh, emotional about it. He's, uh, mm. he, really be- he really believed in, um, in pregnancy center support. That's a big focus of his. Uh, his mom, I think it was his mom or his aunt, ran the, uh, the Florence Crittenden home and. Uh, in their town, you know, uh, his, I mean, his heart is, is there, but he's also loves being in the limelight. He loves being, um, in the place he's in right now, the whole nation wearing wristbands saying, what would, what would Joe Manchin do and lobbying him to their side? Like he just, he's kind of born to this. He is Mm -hmm. a reflection of, he's a reflection of West Virginia. Um, (laughs) (laughs) he just really is. And, um, and he's, he's good at it. And he's pro-life. That's that is encouraging. I hadn't been sure if because these days pro-life on the Democratic side just means, you know, like, you know, overtly unsympathetic towards infanticide because their position has gotten so radical <laughs> yes, that exactly, it's yeah. you know that it's not difficult to be a air quotes good like like Tulsi Gabbard is a good Democrat. Um yeah. and, and and there's nothing particularly stellar about the legislation she's putting forward. It's just that yeah. it's a lot less extreme than than what the other Democrats support. So she looks reasonable by contrast. Um Well think about think about being in that position. Now now when uh, I'll be I'll be honest, when, when Manchin ran, we ran against him because of his um because of uh his position on Planned Parenthood going back and forth. He couldn't figure out what he believed and and uh, some other bad votes. So I'm just that on the table, but think about his, the position that he is in, and the in the increasingly polarized environment, increasingly pro-abortion post-Obama era of absolute abortion, absolute uh, abortion absolutism, what we think of it as, and that's everybody that he knows in the, in the Democratic apparatus. Yeah, and then he and Tulsi Gabbard, same, are conscience bound to to do um, what they think they should do, it, it takes a lot more courage than your average Republican to vote pro-life. Um, when they're his, his vote on Kavanaugh was very encouraging just because they, yeah. they went nuts over Kavanaugh and he still voted for him. Exactly. And he really is a reflection of West Virginia in that way. That's why there's hope, but not certainty that he'll stick right. to this, this commitment. So one of uh, like looking at the, you know, I'll just, I'll just leave the question open-ended because uh, you know, everybody threads the needle <laughs> carefully and everything's been nuts for, for, for the last couple of months. So how the last couple of months been for, for the Susan B. Anthony list, both sort of, you know, personally as pro-life leaders trying to grapple with a rapidly changing situation and uh, have you managed to speak to, to the vice president and how is he holding up through all this considering that he's sort of uh, the pro-life movement's man in the white house. Yeah, so the last several months have been like living in a um, in a uh, living through several several battles in an overall war um, because we're so hand to hand on the on the state level 
and that will be the end of my violent scene. Um, but being, uh, being, moving really quickly on the ground in a political, in a fast-moving political campaign is what we um, are really good at. And, um, mm. and, but we don't want to have to, and yet we have. Um, so adding, so really having a, just an, uh, a, a tidal wave of door-to-door activity in, um, in eight battleground states uh, statewide and having been on the ground for a very long, a uh, very long time, a year, longer than any party or, or anybody really is, you get a real good sense of how things are going. And those anecdotal pieces were always positive, always really good. It was, re- it was the reason I was cautiously optimistic in winning the presidency and the Senate. Right. Um, then, then, you know, things changed so quickly in a, in a, especially in a Trump world. And, um, and then we had to add, Iowa and South Carolina, of all places. Like, if you're adding Iowa and South Carolina Senate races with uh, Joni Ernst and Lindsey Graham, then you're like, holy cow, if we're adding that, we're in trouble. But we did feel like we feel that we needed the, the polling, which, you know, you, you have to have something to look at, um, wasn't good, really bad, you know. And so we kept adding or shifting, given the current, given the environment. And then to have to completely take all of our troops from, uh, you know, election disappointment, election concern about election integrity and all that. And then so concerned about all of that and then going to Georgia and bringing and frankly, our troops coming in from all over the country to go door to door in Georgia. We ended up uh, reaching over 800,000 homes in Georgia, which is a major portion of the voting population. Yeah. And so, so I think it, you know it was very positive and showed our agility. Uh, and yet we lost again. And so, um, what that means—I know you're not asking this—but it means that we've got to believe in that this movement transcends the moment, and it right. does. Right. So while our all of our door-to-door people are are really, really heartbroken. They know that you don't have the privilege of staying heartbroken. You have to pick up, learn something, and move on. And and Mike Pence is a good example of exactly that perspective. That is who he is to the core. And I have had uh, visited with him, um, you know, more than once in the last month. I had lunch with him um, a few weeks ago at the at um, White House, and you know, we're he is a. He is a natural ally of the conservative movement. He's a natural ally, probably first, of the pro-life movement. Um, I mean, I think his whole story and how he makes decisions um, says to me that he's a uh, that he's a leader of the future. Whether he runs for president or not, I really do think his father knows best right now. He always <laughs> That's kind of how I think a pro-lifer about first and, and a politician second. Well. Yeah, I, that's right. That's exactly, I mean, he, I don't know if he's ever told you the story about getting involved in the first place. You, you know, he was a Democrat and he was a radio show host and he calls himself uh, Rush Limbaugh uh, decaffeinated right. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, when he was on the radio. And, um, but he, um, he was a Democrat, uh, but the party left, left him behind mainly on pro-life, but on other things too. And Reagan was his attraction. But when they, when Karen and he were, cons- were considering running, and and their kids were little. They explained to them, "This is why we're running." And they had a beautiful picture at the time of the Life magazine um, in utero pictures of the unborn child. And this is why we make the sacrifices that we do. 
Right. You know, there were other things, too, obviously, that they believed in. But when that's happening, you cannot sit. You cannot sit. you got to get up and move. And so that's been part of the personality and the call of their family's life, you know. So uh, we'll see what's next, huh? We'll see what next seems to be like an evergreen statement uh, starting last March. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. I mean, honestly, if you don't think some things transcend this moment, then you can't even stand thinking about the next moment. But, you know, it's not boring. No, that that that's true. There's a Chinese blessing and a curse wrapped up into one. May you live in interesting times. (laughs) And I I do think about that one a lot. Me too. Now, I mean, I'm in, you know, I don't care if you print this or not, but so, you know, and and I think a lot of people are experiencing complete uh, disconnect and out of kilter in the world. And they're also experiencing it in their family. For instance, my oldest daughter hasn't spoken to me in weeks and we live in the same town and we love each other very much, but she just, she just can't bring herself to speak to me because of all the things that have been happening. You know, it's my fault that the rioters, uh, you know, did what they did. And I think a lot of us are experiencing exactly that, whether it's in their families or in the world. So there better be something that, to believe in that's bigger than this stuff, or it's seriously yeah. too much. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the, what happens, uh, like, looking, so we, we, we discussed what, what everybody's, you know, sort of burning question is, which is what's the defensive posture look like in the next two years and what the likelihood of that is. Um, I'm encouraged to know, uh, you know, that, that Joe Manchin is, is pro-life and has remained pro-life through all this. Um, so that's good to know. 2022, if, if, if the GOP can take the Congress back, does that kind of stop Biden's ability to pursue a radical agenda cold? Yeah, well, I think it means that we still, it, it's, it's um, you know, it, it still means, it means that the Senate is a, is a porous backstop. In other words, not a guaranteed backstop, but that it is the one place that's a holdout, and we have been there before. It right. means that everybody's got to stick together. So, you know, uh, it doesn't stop at all cold. It means that around the edges, we've still got Mark, Markowski, and we've got Collins, and we've got people, you know, we've got the usual situation. But it means if we if we pick up one of the houses in two years, we at least have held at bay. Uh, well, first thing that has to happen is that Manchin has to commit, keep its promise on the filibuster. Right. Um, because they could ram through changes on the legislative filibuster and the Supreme Court before and, and the Senate in two years. They could easily do it in, in a few weeks if they wanted to. Oh, if, if Manchin, so if the order of priority is Manchin staying firm. Uh, recreating divided government. How about a goal for that? You know, uh, that's enough to excite anybody, <laughs> nobody. But it, but it, we have to, create, you know, win one of the houses simultaneously. Of course, doing and that and that um, that would stop the Biden uh, pro-abortion agenda if we are if we're successful at that. So hold over there, um, status quo here on the federal level. And then out in the states where the real activity is happening when it comes to the abortion issue, mm-hmm. pressing forward and, 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 and continuing the very strong pro-life wave that doesn't stop because of a very narrow election result. Mm-hmm. The wave is still continuing. We're very much on the offense in the, in the public mind on the federal level, but, uh, but in, in the laws and the um, legislation on the state level and in the courts. 
So I, I had a question uh, for you looking at all this stuff, because there's a lot of talk over the last couple of weeks of turning the temperature down. And there's, you know, I think everybody realized with the Capitol Hill riots that this is um, like, this is something like this. It just, it needs to stop. People's emotions are running really high. It's being twerked by everything from the pandemic to social media, to, to beliefs that are being promoted by people. It's just like, it's, it's a total storm, right? Like when you got a bare chested Viking QAnon guy, um, in, in the middle of the Capitol, you know, things are not going great. Um, are rifling through the speaker's desk. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it really is nuts. But when you're looking at, at turning the temperature down, I've often thought that one of the reasons everybody cares so much about federal politics is because of Roe v. Wade in the first place. And the, the left treats Roe v. Wade like it's one, the most important thing there is. In reality, if you want to turn the temperature down, Roe v. Wade gets tossed out and each state gets to make its own decisions on abortion. And you don't have to live in, you know, Mississippi if you don't want to. So you can you you, you can live you can live near an abortion mega clinic in New York State if you want to. Um, like it seems to me that by take, taking some of the most contentious issues, the issues that we cannot compromise on. Right. We can't literally and figuratively split the baby on the abortion issue. Um, so there's no Solomonic compromise that can be made. And this the only way of, of doing this is allowing people uh, in, in, in individual states to, to decide for themselves, which would benefit both sides in terms of it would really bring the temperature down. The presidency wouldn't mean nearly as much. The Supreme Court wouldn't mean nearly as much. It feels to me, at least, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this, as if getting rid of Roe v. Wade would be, would be best for both sides. Well, I think you and I believe that, and I think in the long run that absolutely would be true and true for the 75%, which is, of course, who, who can ever get 75% on anything? I think, yes, I think that that long run is definitely right. Short run, it is civil war. Um, and I don't think that in the short run it would turn temperatures down. Because think about it the way they do, the way I used to think about it, which is this is a fundamental human right. And to take away that, so that right, thinking from their perspective, to take away that right, is an assault on the body of the human uh, of the woman, right? And they see it like that. And I and I know the level of passion again because I used to think that. So in the short term, they they have everything to lose, and it, and and losing they feel Roe v. Wade um, trickling through their fingers right now, mm-hmm. and that makes them crazy. And so when it becomes real, it will be worse. But but for a little while, not forever, because they are a dwindling percentage that feels that strongly that there has to be abortion guaranteed up until birth. Um, and you're right about, I think, about the nature of the wisdom of how our, our country is uh, uh, is designed by by the Constitution and the way the way we uh, the way federalism works, that the will of the people be allowed to make their make its way into the law um, is by definition consensus and and peaceful resolution of a highly contentious topic. Um, so to the extent that 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 public opinion does make it, its way into the law that reflects the will of the people, yes, I think in the long run it definitely um, turns down the temperature. It's just that in the short run it'll be a war. How, how encouraging was uh, the uh, the telemed abortion vote on the Supreme Court with ACB casting her first vote on abortion? Was that encouraging? Because we're, we're always worried yeah. that somebody's going to get squishy. <laughs> always. And, 
And, you know, because these votes are so complicated, sometimes, yes, they appear really squishy, but there's some beyond their ability to change reason that they had to stick with a law that they, that they, that it was beyond their, their ability to change. But yes, all that being said, um, like Roberts on the Louisiana case. Yes, exactly. So, but you know, I don't really know if I would agree with that because any changes position later, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you don't know which, which Roberts you agree with. Yeah, exactly. No, but with her, absolutely. Yes. We are very encouraged. I mean, to have a six, three court, means that so many things are in play. They have different, slightly different judicial philosophies among the six, meaning how much do you care about whether you are getting reelected as a Supreme Court nominee, which is how I think about Robert thinks about it. Like the public opinion means so much and mm-hmm. his ability to, you know, whatever. So six, three means you can have some diversity among that group, but still rule the day. Um, and, and that, and their, their majority, you know, uh, we, we think, believe that Roe was wrongly decided, you know, and um, so that's good. That means that all these cases making their way up through several circuits where there are circuit splits um, happening before our very eyes means that uh, we could get to a place where viability, the viability standard, which makes no scientific sense whatsoever, mm-hmm. um, could be tested and, um, and other things tested too. But for instance, Christy Nome uh, is advocating now, I mean, the legislation isn't even making its way yet, but she's really advocating for the pe- the one that I think that and, that and that Justice Thomas wants to see, and that's the anti-discrimination abortion question. Yes. Um, that's passing now, like passing all over the place. And, there, and, and you pass that, you've killed the viability standard because you could abort a baby if you can, if you can protect a baby because she has Down syndrome at four months then, or five months, uh, then you've killed the viability. It's not, not contingent on viability, whether she's supported or not. Right. So, so anyway, long answer to your question, we have a lot more hope. Yeah. And I honestly think that the negative environment right now uh, uh, surrounding us um, helps this, doesn't hurt it. It doesn't dampen the pro-life sentiment and the pro-life passion. It actually is emboldening. That's a a final question um, I was going to ask. For all the the pro-life listeners uh, who are feeling pretty dispirited right now, um, and, you know, you're talking to a lot of of pro-life people in government. You're seeing stuff unfold on the state level. You kind of got, you know, if if people are playing 3D chess, you kind of have to because you're looking at the legislative branch, you're looking at the state level, and then you're looking at the federal level. So what would you tell people to encourage them? I I find a lot of what you've shared with us extremely encouraging, but what would be your final message to the average pro-life, you know, activist who's feeling like, what's the point? We we got really shellacked and they're feeling pretty, pretty out of sorts and dispirited after the last month or two. Well, it's really concrete. It's not just, hey, buck it up, move on. It's really concrete. Our gains far outdistance our losses. Our hope for overturning Roe and saving the lives of little boys and girls is so much greater than it ever has been. And it's because of the work that's been done on the courts and the potential ability to pass laws to save their lives. So it really is you know, many administration changes are like a TikTok back and forth. Democrats, bad executive orders. 
Republican, good executive orders. Right. You know, uh, good policies, bad policies. They just reverse each other every single time. And it's like, okay, what's the point? It just doesn't even matter. Well, this is a different moment than all of those other moments. And it's because of the, of the place of the courts combined with really strong pro-life legislatures all over the country and their desire to pass these laws. And that is our place of hope and prayer and activism, even while we try to take back um, everything on the federal level and guarantee some important uh, gains there. The real hope um, is that that be allowed to happen. And that is in everybody's backyard. It's not on Capitol Hill. It's not far away. It's right where you live. And that's why this is the biggest moment for the pro-life movement ever since, since Roe versus Wade and why I think we are really at the beginning of a brand new pro-life movement in so many ways. Well, Marjorie, thank you so much for taking the time to go over all this stuff with us. So I love it. I love talking to you. I use all your imagery and metaphors and never give you credit. I love it. Thank <laughs> you. You're really good. <laughs> Our joke actually is, is there, there's, there, there's, there's no such thing as plagiarism in the pro-life movement because it's all in service of the cause, not your sort of <laughs> personal well-being. <laughs> Hello, everyone. That was my conversation with Marjorie Dannenfelser. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Head over to the podcast tab on lifesightnews.com to listen to more interviews, more insightful commentary on exactly how we got to where we got featuring conversations with the top pro-life, pro-family, and other intellectuals to explain to you what's going on and how we got here. Once again, thanks so much for joining us.